Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sunday School, a new Bible study podcast brought to you by The Pillar. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my good friend, Dr. Scott Powell, to talk here at Sunday School about the Gospel of Mark. In this episode, Scott will talk about the second half of Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 56, and then chapter 7 through 10. We'll talk about deafness and blindness, clean and unclean, and then bread. Here at Sunday School, we have asked Pillar co-founder Ed Condon to record the readings for each episode to help you better engage with Scott's commentary. If you've already done the reading, you can skip ahead to about 2240 in this episode. But if you haven't, here's Ed with Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 56, and then chapter 7 through 10. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran their own foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. They said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii's worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. He divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Genesaret and moored on the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him, and ran about the whole region, and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that he might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, were made well. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they have washed their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, 
Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with undefiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then you are also without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he arose, and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, and came, and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go on your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed, and said to him, Ephaphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear, and the mute speak. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, 
he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about four thousand people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat, and with his disciples he went to the district of Domanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought him a blind man and begged him to touch him. They took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. He opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he was strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. After six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, 
This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking round, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. When they had come to the disciples, they saw a great crowd round them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Then Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd had come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? Then he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Then he went on from there and passed through Galilee, as he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered to the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had been argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung round his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, 
cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will it be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace with one another. And he left there, and went to the region of Judea, and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Then he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus had looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come in eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. 
and those who followed him were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers in the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. For whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. I actually love this section of Mark because it gets surprisingly complicated for as in a hurry as Mark is and with his particular agenda of kind of just getting the information to these people who need it, things get complicated here. And this is where it's easy to forget. And I think this is interesting. This is where it's easy to forget that Mark presumably and primarily is speaking to a group of converts right. of Roman Christians who are not primarily coming from Judaism. But it's surprising because he really unpacks a lot of the Old Testament realities in ways that do. I mean, this is a different conversation that I don't want to get a sidetracked on. But um, it says something about catechesis in the early church well, and the things that Mark could assume on his audience. One of the things you told me about those Roman converts that has really stuck with me is that Mark is talking to people who are facing Christian persecution yeah. and facing who are Christians facing persecution. Right. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Not, well, that works. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, who are Christians facing persecution and who are in many ways probably discouraged by by that experience of serious persecution, being arrested, people being executed. And so, Mark, you, you talked about tries to emphasize like the power and authority of Jesus yeah. as a way of right. like a reminder of who it is that they're serving. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And and what Mark goes on to show is that. 
because Jesus has the kind of authority that he has, mm-hmm. he is able to give it to his disciples as well. And so discipleship is a, a big part of this, not right. just in the sense of following blindly after Jesus, but actually using the grace that Jesus has given us to go and do the things that he's done, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool. So we talked last time about uh, this, what we call a Mark and Sandwich, right? So this little story that Mark sandwiches inside of another story. At the beginning of Mark 6, where the uh, Jesus sends out the, the disciples to yeah. evangelize. Then we hear about the beheading of John the Baptist. And then we come back and the apostles return to Jesus and say, right. here's what happened. And it's kind of like, why is John the Baptist in there? Right. The, and, and I think what Mark is trying to show us, again, to this particular community that you just mentioned, who's suffering or about to suffer, um, we're all going to suffer at some point in time. So this is good news for all of us. Uh-huh. This is the consequence of discipleship. It, it could cost, it, it will cost us something. Right. It might not cost everyone their heads, but it will absolutely cost something. And sure. so if you feel like the path that you're headed down is costing you something, be aware and take comfort that this is the root of discipleship and it's okay. Yeah. So that's good news. Where it turns into slightly bad news. Well, it's going to turn bad news soon. But for now, um, yeah, we come back in verse 30. It says the, uh, the apostles returned to Jesus and they told him all about what they had done and taught. I always picture, you know, little kids who are excited when they come back yeah, from like, the playground. Yeah, like, yeah, Jesus, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh, Guess what yeah. we did? Right. But he responded to them, go to a quiet place. Be quiet. For right. A yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah. guys. It's Because that's what Jesus told them. He said, oh, he, Jesus said, let's go to a quiet place and rest. Yeah. He doesn't even say let's. He just says, come away and go yeah. over there for a little bit. <laughs> oh, guys, oh, oh. I mean, it's true. He does. He does accompany them. And maybe that's clear in the grammar. But, okay. But you guys need some quiet time. Oh, okay. In Great. a certain sense. I, I, I was a little bit confused by that come away because it sounds like it's inclusive, but you're suggesting it's more of a ascending. First go and evangelize, then go and take a rest. I think so. Okay. Yeah, I think so. I think you could read that a couple of ways, but that's, that makes most sense to me. All right. So we said, yeah, come away by yourselves uh, and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So not only are they coming back and they have a lot to talk about because they've experienced all these things and done all these things, whatever that is, but their reputation is preceding them. We've saw before Jesus was getting so popular that he didn't have time and right. he didn't have space, but now the apostles as well. And it's a great representation of how... The church is meant to do and be what Jesus is. They're not, we're, we're not Jesus, obviously. Sure. But we are meant to do the things that but Jesus does. But in the beginning does. chapters of Mark, Jesus is, like after he does some healings and stuff, right. Jesus is super popular and he is going away. And now right. the apostles are experiencing that same They're clamor. They're experiencing the same thing, yeah. In part because these these disciples, these apostles are sharing in Jesus' power. Like in the first part of this, he sent them out with right. the power to cast out demons right. and these things. And so now people are like, wow, these guys are powerful. Absolutely. Too. Which is, again, there's going to be a weird reversal of that soon. But for now, so they're, they're, they, they can't even eat. And it's significant that Mark sort of starts that way. They can't even eat. There's yeah. so much going on. Yeah, so it says that they went away in the boat, like Jesus. Again, we see, we've seen this scene before. To a lonely place by themselves. But, here's, here's the button, verse 33. Many saw them going, and they knew them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. Oh, wah, wah. <laughs> so as he landed, he saw a great throng, and he had compassion on them. Um, there's different moments in the Gospels where Jesus gets frustrated with people who seem to be looking just for the miracles. Yeah. Just looking for their bellies to be fed or for the cool, you know, event, the fireworks. But here it shows Jesus actually has compassion on them because... Their excitement is right in a certain sense. It might be, you know, not quite 
rightly placed because they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're hearing something. They're, they have this deep desire for something. Yeah. They don't know what it is, and they, they obviously see a piece of it here. So it says, so he landed, he saw them, he had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a lonely place, <laughs> which is where he told them to go in the first place. And some translations say deserted place, which Ooh. I think is important because it doesn't say explicitly the desert, but a deserted place uh, evokes the desert or wilderness, mm. which got, gets me thinking of Exodus imagery, yeah. which is, I think, going to be really important. So they're in a deserty place, a wilderness place, and there is no food, mm. which reminds me a lot of what we see in Exodus, right? Yeah. Where all of Israel has you know, been freed from slavery. They're in the wilderness. It's this deserted place, and they're really hungry, and yeah. things are going to get real rough soon. Uh, verse 35. So it grew late, and his disciples came to him and said, this is a lonely place. The hour is now late. So he, they tell Jesus, send them into the villages, send them away to go into the country of the villages roundabout to buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, you guys give them something to eat. And they say, uh, what? So it's this is a, a weird moment. Of, they haven't had any time to eat. And then Jesus is like, feed those guys. Yes. Mm -hmm. But it's also, if you remember, again, contextually, what's just happened? They've just come back from doing all of this stuff right. with the authority of Jesus' name. Right. Now they're mm -hmm. like, Jesus, get them some food. Yeah. And Jesus, in, in something of a logical way, is like, no, you guys do it. Yeah. Which they're not going to get. Um, so he answered, you guys give them something to eat. And they have a sarcastic response. They say, so we're supposed to go buy 200 denarii's worth of bread and give it to them as something to eat? Oh, like far beyond what we actually have. Like, oh, we'll just conjure up. A couple grand and then go buy food for all these people. Right. Okay. 200 denarii, by the way, um, was probably closing in. If you if you translate, I don't know the exact numbers, but just for perspective, that's probably somewhere around $20,000 in okay. modern terms. That's a lot if of money. That gives you perspective, not just about the amount of money, but the amount of mouths they have to feed. Right. Yeah. This, is, this is significant. Yeah. And so then he said to them, how many loaves do you guys have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. We have five loaves and two fish. We, we've heard this story in other Gospels yeah. and sort of extrapolate in other ways. What I think is most telling about this is that in this particular story, Jesus puts all of the emphasis on the disciples. Right. They come to him and they're like, we don't know what to do. They, they've just, they're, they're fresh off of, I, I wonder if, if some of us who have been in ministry for any period of time have this feeling of like, you know, I've had this experience or this success in ministry or in discipling someone or, you know, whatever it is. And now I almost don't know what to do with that, mm -hmm. you know, and they, they have the, they're, they're confused and they don't know what to do. So then Jesus kind of takes command and it says he commanded all of them to sit down by companies upon the green grass. The green grass is really important because I think Mark is structured around the gospel of Isaiah. Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways he wants Isaiah to be floating in the background. Yeah. If Mark has just kind of laid out for you a sort of exodus scene mm -hmm. of a bunch of people in the desert who are really hungry and they need miraculous food. This suggests that maybe this is evoking Isaiah, and Isaiah speaks about a new exodus. And in this new exodus, the desert is going to turn to grass, and the mm. desert will bloom, and there'll be trees and flowers and all sorts of stuff. So I think it's significant that they kind of sit down. And the way that they sit down, I think that's interesting as well, by hundreds and fifties. So it's a very orderly scene. Yeah, why is that? Down. I think it's meant to evoke, number one, the way that the tribes of Israel assembled in the wilderness after uh -huh. the time of Exodus, yeah. that Jesus is literally forming a new Israel around him. Uh -huh. 
but it also kind of reminds me of a big banquet in a certain right. sense. Everyone's kind of got their tables or their groups. Symposia, I think, is the word that the Greek actually uses, uh -huh. which reminds me of a wedding banquet. So Mark, in a couple of verses, has just brought together the Exodus story, a prophecy from Isaiah. And that prophecy from and Isaiah about the desert being turned to grass, that's a messianic prophecy. It absolutely. To, so even though this audience isn't Jewish and maybe even going to get it. But I think they will get it. Because again, I think the the... the baseline of catechesis for those who were coming into the church, uh -huh. especially in the early church, was so far beyond, I think, what a lot of us experience. Because the understanding was, of course, you're entering into a family. You're not just you're not just joining a club if you're right. going to become a Catholic. You're, right. you're coming into our family. And if you're going to come, it, it's like when we married our wives, right? We, we had to know their families and hear all the stories yeah. of them, the uncles and the aunts and you know the family story and you yeah. become a part of something that's not just joining an organization or a club. So I think this is a, a piece of evidence that the catechetical, the catechesis in the early church, the RCA process, for lack of a better way to say it, was so far beyond, I think, what sure. we think it was. Uh -huh. understand. They understood. Right. They knew the references because right. they were in the same way that, you know, we're steeped in like the Star Wars movies or something. Like, uh -huh. We all have a common language and a common reference points. Yeah. You know, if I said the force be with you. Yeah. Everybody knows I'm talking about Star Wars. Right. If if you say sit down in the in the green grass, it would have there would I think have been it would have evoked a, this oh, new okay. exit because this wow, is cool. what people wanted. They were yeah. hoping for, they were longing for. Cool. And it would have evoked that. And it would, you know, talking about the wilderness and being hungry would have evoked the Exodus. Yeah. Again, it speaks to a pretty advanced audience yeah. um, in Rome. So all these things happen. There's a new bank. Oh, and it's also pointing ahead toward the, the Messianic bank with the wedding bank with the John and Revelation are talking about. So all this stuff, I think, is actually folded into this story. And it has kind of this happy ending. Everybody ate. They have, what, 12 baskets left over. I like this story because there's no kind of moment of, like, fireworks. It yeah. just all sort of subtly happens, and everyone yeah. has enough to eat. The apostles are freaking out. Jesus puts the authority on them because they are the priests, right? Yeah. They are the bishops. And so it's proper that Jesus puts the authority on them. They don't know what to do, so they turn back to Jesus and say, help. Yeah. And what happens? Subtly peacefully without giant fireworks all ate and they were filled yeah the church is doing its job um in a certain sense by turning to jesus but there's a dark side to this can i ask a question before yeah, yeah. that dark side <laughs> is there um the broken pieces is there a eucharistic connotation there yeah i think so and without without trying to read in too much and kind of go beyond my own comprehension uh -huh. the couple things that just jumped to my image image wise because yeah. mark loves imagery there's clearly Eucharistic imagery here, right? And the church has always seen the feeding of the, the crowd's stories, the multiplication of the loaves as, as Eucharistic. I read this verse, taking the loaves and the fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and yeah. broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And isn't yeah. that almost a, almost a, if, evocative of the mass? Yeah, I always call them the four power verbs. <laughs> so take, blessed, broke, gave mm. are the, the verbs that always show up in Eucharistic language. Okay. So this is... A heavy foreshadowing of the of the Last Supper, because uh -huh. Mark's going to use the same terminology there. Uh -huh. But I also wonder if looking backwards, so the, the broken pieces are filling up 12 baskets, yeah. which is meant to evoke the 12 tribes of Israel. And in a very real sense, there's a brokenness to the 12 tribes. Yeah. The old covenant is broken. The old people of Israel have, have been broken. They need a Messiah. They need a Savior. And they need to be reconstituted. Yeah. And how does Jesus reconstitute Israel? Yeah. By becoming broken himself, by yeah. taking on the brokenness and so i think all that stuff is is kind of floating around here which i think is really beautiful
So it says then immediately, there's then immediately again, he um, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. So he kind of lets them off the hook. Take a break, get in the boat. You guys just, just chill for a sec. And when he had taken leave of them, he went into the hills to pray. And then evening came and the boat was out on the sea. So he like sends them out on the boat and right. he takes off the other direction uh-huh. and the disciples are confused. So they're out on the boat and while they're in the boat, in the boat, there was a big storm, right? In verse 48, it says that he saw that they were distressed in rowing, uh-huh. which I like that. Yeah, like, they're, they're tired. Yeah they're, yeah. they're having a hard time. They're tired. The winds um, on yeah, this, this part like of the world. Yeah, this sounds like This is like hurricane force. Right. Like, this is a bad storm. We've already seen Jesus's ability to calm storms back in chapter four. So mm-hmm. there's precedent, but he's disappeared. He's gone the other direction. And it says, um, about the fourth watch of the night. So toward morning, really right about sunrise. So in other words, they suffered under this all night and Jesus took off the other direction while they had to deal with this issue all night long. And it says, then he came to them toward morning, walking on the sea. And I love this line. He meant to pass by them. He was just going to keep on going. He's just, yeah, what is that? He meant to pass by them, but when they saw them walking on the sea, they thought, of course, it was a ghost. And so they cried out, for they saw him, and they were terrified. But immediately then he spoke to them, and he said, Take heart, it is I, have no fear. This is where it gets weird. Then he got into the boat with them. I don't know if this is the same scene where Peter walks on water, told uh-huh. in the other, other Gospels, or if it's a whole separate Because that story, story isn't in the Gospel of Mark. I don't believe so, okay. yeah. So it could be the same scene, and that piece is not included or, uh-huh. or not. So we got into the boat with them as the winds and the winds cease. So as soon as his presence shows up, the storm is calmed, as we've seen before. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. Yeah, what's that? And then Mark kind of leaves you there. This is, I, I mentioned this last time, and again, without making too big of a deal of it, one of the features that I always see in Mark is I wonder if Mark wants us to feel the confusion at times of the disciples Uh because i think the logical response is we read this and i think the logical response is exactly what you just had you finish this and you're like wait what there are a couple of mysteries (laughs) here that that jesus meant to pass by them right then this didn't understand about the loaves yeah it feels like a weird scene in a movie that there's like symbols that are going to be revealed later but you don't get them right and i mean on on a on a pretty surface level i mean what it's saying they're, they didn't understand about the loaves. What, what does that mean? What are the loaves? Well, the loaves is, of course, the previous story was right. that they were in distress. Yeah. They were lacking something, and Jesus miraculously gave it to them. Their needs were provided for. Here they're in a storm. They're freaking out. And, I mean, the only conclusion you can reach from this is that they don't seem to think that their needs are going to be provided for. Yeah. They didn't take the lesson of the loaves, which was Jesus is going to show up. Sometimes yeah. it's going to take a while. Sometimes it's going to hurt a little bit. Yeah. He will provide and he will take care of you. Is that is there a way in which that's being said as much for the benefit of the Roman community? Um, yeah. Hey, the, you guys who are in the Roman community are in a storm, which we've talked about yeah. all this persecution. Totally. And you were worried because you didn't understand about the Eucharist. Is that a reasonable, you didn't understand about this breaking of the bread that you participate in? Maybe. No, no, I, by I all means. I mean, that. but don't feel free if that doesn't seem to make sense in the text. I just wondered if that was like, the next time that I'm afraid on, I say to myself, like, well, I guess I really didn't understand about the mass. If I, if I think that can happen and I don't think this can happen. Ah, put it that, when you put it that way, it, it makes more sense to me. I mean, I think that the problem is they don't know if they're in the right track, if they're on the right track. Right. I'm reminded of the book of Hebrews, which mm-hmm. is actually written not to Gentiles, but to Jewish people who are suffering their own kind of persecution, mm-hmm. um, you know, from inside their own community and are probably tempted to throw in the towel because this is too hard and maybe we made the wrong choice. Right. 
And, it, you know, I, I think people are well catechized in this time, so they understand the sacramental reality, but maybe they're just not connecting the dots. Uh-huh. Hey, you believe this, but do we believe this? Which right. I think is our perennial problem as Christians, right? We mm-hmm. believe, at least I try to believe, that, you know, the bread and wine be, become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. But I don't spend the rest of my life like I believe that. Right. I, I, I can suspend my senses in that moment and say, I believe that all of my senses are deceiving me. And what I'm actually receiving is more than meets the eye. But then I'll go out into the world and I'll be like, oh, I'm scared of everything. Death seems like it's conquered everything. I'm still a slave to sin. All of these things that I don't necessarily know that, you know, did you not? What, what does he say? We did not understand the Eucharist. We didn't understand right. that thing that we claimed we understood. So it is perennially important. But the thing that needs to be added on to it is the very next line that says, but their hearts were hardened. Mm. So this isn't just a simple lack of understanding. It's yeah. not just saying, well, we didn't put the dots together. Yeah. We should have trusted better. They did not trust. It sounds like an active distrust. The only other time we've seen the idea of hearts hardened was the religious leaders who were trying to kill him. Right. Their hearts were hardened. Pharaoh's heart, back in the Exodus story, was hardened. Remember, Exodus is in the background of this whole thing, too. Hardened hearts are not a good thing. And so mm-hmm. when you're hearing that the disciples, who had the authority of Jesus to go do all these things, mm-hmm. their hearts are hardened? Mm-hmm. What are their hearts hardened to? Well, they just had a big storm. Their hearts are hardened. <laughs> we've all been, well, maybe we've been, in situations where we're suffering something or life is hard. And it's not just, man, is God going to show up? Man, I'm really having a hard time here. But God, you're not going to show up. I don't believe that it's going to work out. I don't believe that you have my back. That's what we're seeing here. And that's a different level. Um, What's kind of beautiful about that is that if you're the Christian community in Rome and the disciples, the apostles are held up as the models of faith, the models of discipleship and the exemplars of the church, to hear, oh, wow, they experienced that too. Even the apostles felt that way. I kind of feel that way. Uh-huh. Wow, that's that's really comforting. For the apostles, for Peter, for Pete's sake, to have the courage to say, yeah, we experienced that. Yeah, Because remember, this is, this is a, Peter an apostle t- telling, telling his own Mark story. story yeah. My yeah. heart was hardened. To have the courage to be like, my heart was hardened. Yeah. Or our hearts were hardened. I yeah. think it's actually really beautiful. Yeah. Because it's it's going to serve to do what, he, what he's going to show next. So then they get the other to the other side of the uh, uh, the sea. Um, it says they got out of the boat, and then everybody shows back up. They have this kind of momentary respite from the crowds, but the respite is just a storm. Uh-huh. And I imagine this idea, you know, you, you take a retreat to, to get a break because life has been hard or whatever else is going on. So I go on retreat, and the retreat is just miserable, and it's just a giant storm, and I can't pray, and I can't focus, yeah. and then I come back to chaos again. Yeah. Which, what what is Mark saying? Yeah, that's kind of life. Yeah. Like, that's kind of how it yeah. works. Yeah. And it says in the wherever he came in the villages and cities. People and are just coming and coming and coming. Yeah. yeah. And what do they want? They want to touch his garments. And this is bringing us back to that woman with the hemorrhage. Uh-huh. And I think, I don't know if I mentioned this last time. There's a, um, a prophecy in the book of Malachi that says when the Messiah comes, there will be healing in his wings. Mm. Um, do you know the musician Sufjan Stevens by any chance? I'm aware of his existence. He has a great song based on Malachi 4. Um, But for you who know his name, the son of righteousness comes with healing in his wings. So another term for the talit, the prayer shawl Uh that rabbis would wear or Jewish men would wear is their wings. Oh, wow. 
And so it seems like a whole lot of people are like, oh, there's healing in his talit, in yeah. his prayer shawl. If I touch the tassels of his wings, I will receive healing. And uh-huh. guess what? They do. Cool. Which is kind of a neat connection as well. Which takes us to chapter 7, which is when things get a little wonky. And I don't want to do as exhaustive a take on chapter 7 as we did on 6, but a couple things that we got we to gotta talk about. Because we ended, I think we, we pretty much ended last time talking about um, that woman with the hemorrhage. Right. And this concept of clean and unclean. Yeah. Which um, is meant to kind of leave some readers kind of wondering about how this works. Because if you're considered unclean, which you've had some connection with with death or with blood or some diminution of life, mm-hmm. you are rendered ritually unclean. And if yeah. you come in contact with anybody else, they too are rendered ritually unclean. Yeah. Which means what? You don't have access to your community. You don't have access to the worshiping community, right? You can't go into the temple or the synagogue or be a part of things um, because the temple, the, the Holy of Holies, was meant to be the place where there was no death. Mm-hmm. It was meant to be a reminder of the Garden of Eden, where death did not exist, at least not in the way that we experience it, and that death someday would be destroyed. This is where the this, this story kind of comes back around. Uh-huh. And this woman who touched Jesus, it wasn't that she made Jesus unclean, it's that she was cleansed by him. Yeah. Um, gosh, there's so many things that are kind of packed into this. But, but just to kind of begin with what Mark does... Right after this whole scene with the storm and people coming to them and the miracle, the miracle of the loaves and the fishes and all the stuff, it says in chapter 7, verse 1, Now when the Pharisees gathered together to him and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands defiled. That is, unwashed. Defiled is a technical term that's used in the book of Leviticus for uh-huh. being ritually unclean. Uh-huh. So in other words... They touch blood. I don't. I don't think what's being implied here, based on the use of the word "defiled," is just that their hands are muddy or they're dirty or they didn't oh. clean after the fish or something like that. But that they've touched maybe a dead ant. Maybe that that is the fish, right? They touched a dead fish and they didn't wash properly, uh-huh. or there was some blood, or they got a but cut. But it's delicious. It's not just having dirty hands. It's, it's not just having dirty hands. It's hands. it's some kind of it's something deeper than that. Yeah. And they didn't wash their hands. Um, for the Pharisees, as all the Jews do, do not eat unless they wash their hands. Again, it's not just go into the bathroom and wash your hands, get some soap. Yeah. But it's this very ritual process that's laid out in a pretty intense way of washing, um, observing the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they purify themselves. And there are many other traditions which they observe, the washing of cups and pots and vessels of bronze. And so the Pharisees and the scribes, they asked him, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? But they eat with their hands defiled. And Jesus gets ticked. And he says, classic, he brings in Isaiah, right? He said, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And in vain do they worship me, touching his doctrines, the precepts of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold fast to the traditions of men. So we've mentioned before that there are two kind of sets of rules or laws going on in Jesus' time, right? There's the laws of the Bible. There's Leviticus and Deuteronomy, right? Some in Numbers, Uh um, which have to do with clean and unclean and what to do. And then there's what the Pharisees are doing, which is piling on a bunch more laws on top of them so that we never get close to breaking the real laws. Right. The ways in which they are demanding everyone wash their hands are related to that. So like, so like, um, it would be as if I, maybe I used this example in another podcast, I can't remember, but it would be as if I was so concerned about breaking the Eucharistic fast of eating 
you know, not an hour before receiving the Eucharist, that I told everybody in my family, we can't eat for three hours before we are going to go to Mass because I don't want us to be accidentally confused about when we're going to go to Mass or totally. take too long to eat or something like that. And not just for myself, I have this practice, but that's like an extra spiritual practice. But like I'm telling my whole family much more than the church requires of them. That's a really good analogy. I hey, feel like for years for. I've been bumbling around the <laughs> wrong analogy for that. That's a really good one. Or like, let's say I were a priest. That's exactly. It. Would it be similar to this? Let's say I were a priest and, you know, as a, as a priest, I'm called to continence. I can't have a wife, but I also can't have sex. Yep. This is, these are the rules right. of being a priest. That's and so let's say I'm so concerned about violating the, my obligation to continence that I just tell myself and also the other, like, let's say I'm a bishop and I tell all the priests in my diocese, uh, we never shake hands with women. Yep. Lest we, I mean, would that be a sort of similar thing that we're going so far beyond so that we don't possibly fall into? Yes. I, I like the three hour. One. Okay. Yeah, they're both right. Okay. I like the three hour one because it seems like the kind of thing that you could really easily systematize. I think I'd be very good at being a Pharisee to be perfectly honest. So I'm glad to hear that. But then you convince everyone else around you that right. this is the expectation. This yeah. is what every, and not even just your family, but like this right. is what you do. You sure. Have, it's like the, the priests are teaching this. And then I would see somebody who is eating yeah. two hours before mass and I'd be like, oh, you don't care about loving God? Right. Yeah, totally. Got it. So I, we, that's important that we lay that out because there's two problems that are happening here. And Jesus is going to bring problems to both. There are the Pharisaic laws like we just talked about, which are, and again, I don't, I don't think they're evil. And I, I think you could see value perhaps in the whole three hour fat you know if, right. if you really do struggle with this maybe that's a need that you mm -hmm. have fine they can be totally neutral things they don't have to be evil you know mean-spirited laws sure so jesus is going to blow those open but he's also going to blow open here in this case the actual levitical laws as well mm. and that's where things get problematic because that's confusing because i thought jesus came to fulfill the law and this is i think the point i kind of want to talk about here without okay. going deeply deeply into the text this is a really important question we talk a lot about Jesus fulfilling the law. Right. But I think what most of us mean, quite frankly, when we talk about Jesus fulfilling the law is simply abolishing the law. Because we don't think about, you know, we don't read Leviticus. Oh, I don't wash my hand like that right. anymore. Right. Think that I'm kosher. obliged to those things or something like that. Well, we but just, I just we're assume, not obliged to. I just assume I'm not obliged to it because I'm a Gentile and the Council of Jerusalem and the Book of Acts decided that I don't have to follow that. But why did they? Do so here's the problem. Okay. You're, you're right. So this question comes up here. Mark begins to unpack something that, like you said, is going to come to the level of a full-blown church council because it's such a difficult question right. when we get to Acts of the Apostles. Yeah. It's this same question that nobody knows what to do with. Mm. And Acts certainly gives the implication that there's like yelling matches going yeah. on. The disciples right. are not all convinced on this. Mm -hmm. Because the question is this. The question at the heart of Judaism, which is the question not just of Judaism, it's the question of the people of God. Right. But Judaism dealt with it specifically. Can God change? No, no. You give a good. <laughs> okay. I didn't know if you was a question answer. mark at the but end. The but the answer is no. That the answer is no. Immutable. Yes. By definition, right? Right. The, the, the tetragrammaton Yahweh, the right. name given is not even a name; it's a tense, right? Uh -huh. So God, by His nature, we believe, cannot change. So if that's true, can God change His mind on something? No. And yet we have all these places. Actually, we're about to get to one here in the, in this chapter where Jesus seems to change his mind about something. Are we talking where, about the idea of divine pedagogy, Scott? Where God is unfolding things in a new way over time? Yes and no. You can say no. I mean, I just want to... Yes. I mean, yes. It's not apart from that. But there's something distinct the church had to work through. Okay. So if God can't change... Because there are times when God seems to change his mind. So mm -hmm. we're going to meet this woman... 
she wants healing from Jesus, and he's like, "Hey, should I give the scrap? You know, the dogs, the things that are reserved for the right." The he children. says, "Let the children first be fed. For it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs." So it seems like Jesus doesn't want to heal this woman, right? And she somehow convinces him to change his mind. Yeah, right? it's mm-hmm. weird. Yeah, I she think says, of, uh, "She says, um, but even the dogs under the table have the scrap, the children's crumbs." And he's like, oh, I didn't think of that. He's like, okay. I you changed got my it. mind. I go yeah. back. He actually says, for this saying, you may go your way. It's like, <laughs> right. so clever that you get the thing. Uh, you yeah. got me. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not what's going on. But in the Old Testament, remember, there's the moment, speaking of the Exodus, which again is behind all of this, you had this moment when God told Moses, he's like, I'm out. I'm not going to stay. These people right. stink. I'm gone. And Moses is like, no, you should stay. And right. I'm, I'm going to stay with them. And you're my guy. Right. Or like kind of lot negotiating with lot God. Lot negotiating uh-huh. with God. Jeremiah negotiates uh-huh. with God. Right. There's a bunch of times where it seems like God changes his mind. But I mean, if we if we dig deep and what the rabbis all kind of talk about is that, well, at the end of the story, it's never really God who changes. It's the person who's changed. Uh-huh. It's, uh, it's, well, it's, it's Abraham with Lot, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, who learns how to be an intercessor. Right. Moses, Abraham's prepared to go so far as like, you know, if it's a low enough number, it's cool. Moses is actually prepared to go even further. And he says, you know what? Even if none of them are faithful, if they're all worthless, I'm still going to stick with them. And so he shows this really beautiful solidarity. It's him who comes out the other side changed. It's the Syrophoenician woman, presumably, we'll get to her soon, who comes out the other side changed. God doesn't change his mind. So Uh this is the conclusion of the people of God historically. God does not change. So if God does not change, then how is it possible that we don't have to follow those old laws anymore? How is it possible that... So our Catholics... Um, let me ask... I want to ask this very carefully. I'm thinking about the kosher food laws. Uh-huh. Are Catholics allowed to eat unclean foods? Ritually unclean food? I'm not even going to qualify it. Sure. Are Catholics allowed to eat unclean foods? I guess. So you would say yes. I would say yes. All right. As well, a legal scholar. Yes. I would not say yes because this law. feels like a setup. Yes, it's so totally very... Well, it's obviously a setup. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I try to weasel out of a setup, but my inclination would be to say yes. Well, and this is where... This is but where... Is, sorry, not to ahead. split... No, but it, this comes out here. Um, and what the church... This is, this is what the church is fighting about in the Council of Jerusalem. And the church comes to the conclusion, I think, I, I think it's safe to say, no, and I will say this definitively, no, Catholics are not permitted to eat unclean foods. Despite the bacon that you have. Because of the conversation that they have about food sacrifice to idols. This is what's happening there. No, I think that's a whole different conversation. Well, then help me set the scene here a little bit more. I want to make sure I'm understanding this. So what's happening here in Mark 7 that's sort of leading to this question? What's happening in Mark 7 is that Jesus' disciples are not following all of the ritual laws that people expect that they ought to right, follow. Right, right. Because they're eating that's, with their hands unclean. That's one problem. Uh-huh. And there are a lot of Pharisaic, probably hypocritical laws that they're breaking here. Yeah. But there is a bona fide biblical Levitical law that they also seem to be breaking. Which is eating with unclean hands. Right. If they really are ritually defiled, uh-huh. it's not just the way and the manner in which the Pharisees demand that the hands be washed. Yeah. But it's the fact that, well, that really is a problem. So did God like, change his mind? No. No. And this is what the church comes to the conclusion of. Yeah. The food is easier. And this is actually where the Syrophoenician woman comes immediately after this. Mark says, he goes so far, well, Jesus says through Mark, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a man from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and so passes? Thus he declared all foods clean. So Jesus here is changing divine law. He changed... Uh, there's the second problem. Okay. No, he's not. Okay. And this, but again, if this sounds like I'm splitting hairs and trying to be frustrating to you, I feel a little is... bit lost. I must admit. Okay. 
here's what the Council of Jerusalem comes to. Okay. How is it? Because you, you even said the Gentile thing, right? right? How is it that now, because I'm a Gentile, I don't have to follow kosher food laws anymore? I don't have to wash my hands this certain way. Is it just because I'm a Gentile? Because in Acts of the Apostles, remember God says to Peter, he shows him, remember the pigs in a blanket vision? Yes. In Acts mm-hmm. 10? Yeah. He's like, go and kill and I'll eat all of these presumably unkosher foods. Right. And Peter's like, no, I can't do that. Yeah. And God says, what God has cleansed, you must not call unclean. Oh, so, okay. So I've changed that, that not the law. He didn't change fulfilled. the law. Uh-huh. He changed the nature, the object of the law. Uh-huh. That is now changed. And those things are no longer unclean, which we know is not really about pork chops or, or shrimp. It's about the people that are also considered unclean, these outsiders. So when you say that Jesus fulfilled the law, when you were getting there, what you mean is the law is anticipating a reality and now the reality is here. Is that sort of what you're... Half of that is true. Okay. Yes. But the other thing that, and I, I wanted to frustrate you a little bit. You did. To, to pedagogically <laughs> make a point. Partially because the church was really frustrated. So by listeners, this. if you were a little bit frustrated there, it was Sorry. a pedagogical point. Well, and here's, here's what nobody seemed to get. Uh-huh. And what the church is frustrated with is, okay, if God is God yeah. and God cannot change, yeah. and God cannot change his mind. Right. And God said that we can't eat these foods right. and we have to wash our hands in a certain way. Right. Then we should do those things, whether yeah. you're a Gentile or Jew. Yeah. If God commanded it, we should bound you to it, right? Because that makes sense. Yeah. The conclusion that was reached is that not only Leviticus but Deuteronomy, which is where the law is sort of codified, right? That's the yeah. law par excellence. The name itself, Deutero. You know what Deutero means in Greek? Uh, second. Yeah, second. And nomos means law. Mm-hmm. So second law. So in other words, it's kind of. Not to be flippant about it, but in a certain sense, it's kind of plan B. Uh God gives a law on Mount Sinai, which we call the Ten Commandments, and a bunch of commentary on that law, which is simple and intuitive and doesn't take a whole lot of commentary to unpack. You know, don't kill people, don't steal things, keep God as as number one. Um, But after the sin of idolatry, after they worship a God who is not God and the golden calf, after they turn their back on God and show themselves unfaithful. They have to get a much more exacting law. Yes. So it's like if I they said to my kids, B. if I said to my kids, um, okay, dad has to do some work, so just be nice to each other. And then I came in the room and they weren't being nice to each other. And then I might say, you have to read a book in that chair. You have to yes. sit over there. You have to go into another. That's exactly the right. You're, you're really firing on all cylinders on the analogies Man. today. They call me the analogy guy. What can I say? But, you know, there there should come a point where they don't have to read the book. Any, like, right. we can start again. Like, yeah. there, uh-huh. there comes a point where that. So what the church comes to the conclusion of is. God doesn't change and God's laws are not broken if the laws by their own definition were always designed to be temporary laws. Right. Because why why are we so concerned about clean and unclean? Yeah. Because we're being reminded and we're having something pointing forward to a time where death is destroyed. Right. The temple is meant to point to a time that death would be no more. So here's who shows you... up? Jesus, who's right. the temple, who is death destroyed. And that's where the analogy kind of falls down is that I would revoke the the seat assignments for my children if they right. behaved for a while. Whereas what's right. happening here is so different because yes, the incarnation isn't didn't come because Israel reached a kind of moral perfection. Yeah, that and that's exact. That's the most important. Well, that's one of the most important parts. It's not that oh well, they just got mature enough that they didn't have to right. be bound anymore. Right, is that Jesus came to. Again, this is why fulfillment does not mean abolition. It's right. not just these. Okay, I'm canceling all these out, so don't worry anymore. Right. All of the things that they were pointing toward have now reached their fulfillment. Right. They were pointing, the, the cleansing, the hand washing, the being ritually unclean was pointing toward the scourge of death and how much it stinks to deal with that. Yeah. 
until what? Death is destroyed. Yeah. And when death is destroyed, we're not bound by that anymore. Yeah. And now we're not unclean any longer because death has no power over us. Yeah. And Jesus, what the what the woman, um, you know, the hemorrhage shows us is that Jesus embodies that reality mm-hmm. of the, again, not abolition, but fulfillment of so the So it's law. not that Catholics can't eat unclean foods. It's that there are no more unclean foods exactly because right. this anticipatory law is is uh, reaches a new stage at the exactly right okay cool and if that's true the more important point i might well, i mean i hesitate to say but the more important <laughs> point is that there's no unclean people anymore right and that's what the syrophoenician woman who actually closes this section is meant to embody oh when okay. jesus then goes to her and where is this uh, 724 yeah there she, she is. is possessed by her, her daughter is possessed by an unclean spirit and she's asking the Lord to take that unclean spirit away from her. Yeah. And they have this discussion about, well, she's not, effectively, she's not Jewish. Right. And uh, and then... And so she's a dog. Right, exactly. Which is an insult that many Jewish leaders would use for the Gentiles. Got it. They would lobby that. Or Got it. lob that at them. And so then the Lord, after she says, but even the dogs can eat the children's crumbs. Right. That's when the Lord says, okay, well, you said it, you can you can go. What, how is that sort of fulfilling thing? So this is such a, this is always frustrating me profoundly because uh-huh. it seems like the Lord is... Like what is he doing? Why is he why is he saying these things? It doesn't. Right. It, it should make our skin. Yeah. Crawl why isn't a he very bit. nice? Yeah. Exactly. Right. right. Mm-hmm. And what I think, and I, I actually was asking a priest friend about this the uh, last week, and he was like, I think what you're seeing here is what God does with Abraham. It's mm-hmm. what God does with Moses. It's what God does with no one in a certain sense. God provides space for this person to actually figure it out. It's it's not it's not strictly you know this Socratic questioning, but it's. God kind of providing this space for her to actually come to the right conclusion, for Moses to become an intercessor. God doesn't, I, I don't think in Moses' time, God was really going to turn tail and take off on his people. Right. So why does he say it? That sounds like such a mean thing to do. So that Moses can actually learn to intercede. God doesn't desire anyone's destruction. So why does he make Abraham go through this thing? So that Abraham can actually learn to seek out you know, where there is holiness and goodness and intercede mm-hmm. on behalf of them. Why does God do this to this woman? So that she can demonstrate for all to see the faith that actually shows that this stuff is not binding uh, any longer. Right. So that she can actually get there. So for the rest of our benefit, so that we can see, ah, that stuff is not binding anymore. And I those see. things are not true. Yes. And Jesus in, you know, a, a confusing sort of pedagogical way is giving her the space to do it. Mm. That's the only way I can kind of wrap my mind around No, it. that makes sense but to me. It needs to be seen in light of everything that just came before. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But in light of everything mm-hmm. that came before about the clean yeah. and unclean, right. oh, then it does kind of make sense. Right. Does that make, does that, does. that was I, a long no, kind of diatribe I, on stuff. <laughs> At first, I, I mean, I felt like a Markin audience because for a while <laughs> I was confused... Then I was frightened because you were asking me so many <laughs> right, questions. Rightly so. And then, and then, and then Jesus redeemed the whole thing. Okay. So, so, no. so did that? I, what I what I take away is this notion that it's not that Jesus is just saying, "Oh, these laws don't bind anymore." It's, right. it's that these laws, which were in, in, anticipating the incarnation, right. um, uh, yes. are no longer are, you know are no longer sort of binding, and right. and Christ is making that clear. And then, more importantly, Christ is making clear it's not just these sort of religious ritualism of. Um, of these dietary laws, but that there were people who are clean and unclean. And now um, 
you know, by virtue of the incarnation, all people can be redeemed. Right. And so it's a kind of pointing here to the un- the universalism, the universality of salvation. Yeah, not universalism. <laughs> no, not the universalism, <laughs> which is a different theological idea, but the universality of salvation or and the it, prospect. Of and it. it goes back to one of Mark's main agendas, which is what does Jesus come to do? To bind and plunder, uh-huh. to take back what is rightfully God's uh-huh. that has been taken away. Even sometimes by God's own permission. I mean, things were, were deemed clean and unclean by God right. to teach us about how much things stink and how much, how dangerous sin is and how much we need a savior. Right. And now he has come to bind those things, plunder them and set the world, not turn the world upside down, but set the world right, right side up again. Uh-huh. Which again, so that's, it's, it's complex yeah. the way in which he does it, but it's consistent with what Jesus' agenda is. Mm. This is, I have to believe one of the pieces of evidence the church used in the Council of Jerusalem to begin to unpack what on earth to do with this. Mm. So I think it's important in that sense. Yes. In chapter 8, we get another feeding with bread. So Mark, again, what do we have? We have another Mark and sandwich. And ironically, this sandwich actually is made with bread <laughs> so there's a feeding of the five thousand first and now there's the feeding of the four thousand uh-huh. which is a smaller number and the the biggest significant for sake of time i think we should keep moving but, but the most significant difference is that in this case jesus takes the initiative can i just ask can you just talk for even just yeah, a yeah, minute yeah. about this very weird thing that happens before the feeding of the four thousand oh the, the ears, jesus the ear thing. meets a deaf man yeah. He sticks his fingers in his ear, he spits, he touches his tongue, he looks up to heaven, and then he says, be open. It feels to me like almost a dance, like, your fingers in, turn around, spit, look at, you know, I mean, it's just like, to me, this is just weird how this is happening. Not that Jesus is healing someone, but in this way. What is this? I think one of the things it's doing, and I don't know if it's explicit, but I certainly think it's there. One of the, because this sounds, it sounds shockingly earthy. For, you know, yeah, you give a guy a wet willy and then you spit and everything. Yeah. I think one of the things it's doing, even though the, the, you know, it's kind of crudely physical, it, it, it's pointing toward the, not only the Bible, but Jesus's profound respect for bodily realities. Uh It is an antidote for Gnosticism. I don't think Mm -hmm. it's, you know, directly explicitly trying to to go after because Gnosticism doesn't, hasn't really come to the fore yet by this point in history, but I think it's anticipating what Gnostic, Gnosticism, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Gnosticism, it's sort of this desire that was present in the Greco-Roman world for the secret knowledge. And we have, you know, enlightenment that other people don't. But what always came along with Gnosticism was this concept that spiritual things are good and, and physical things, things are bad, are bad or, yeah. or lower than. What we really need is to sort of transcend right. and, and get beyond physical things, which led to most of the main um, heresies in the church that... Jesus, if Jesus was God, I mean, God can't really suffer. I mean, he yeah. just, docetism, right? He just appeared to see, he right. looked like he suffered, but he's God. So he yeah. didn't, or he was a fully human that had some divine qualities. Right. Yeah, or even a sort of, um, even a sort of good old Irish Catholic Jansenism that says all your desires <laughs> right. are good bad. Good old Jansenism. All, all your desires are bad. Your body yeah, that's is, right. Yeah, these things that's are exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think one of the things it's pointing toward is, you know, in a, in a almost crude way, Jesus cares about the body from spit to, to saliva, to mud, to ears, to, to eyes. Um, and it, he's not afraid. He's not afraid of our body bodily realities uh-huh. for all the, all the implications that might have. Right. There, there's a beauty to the fact that he's not afraid of our bodily realities. Yeah. But the other th- side of this that I think is interesting, 
most of the time when Jesus does stuff like this, he does it in sight of everybody around, in sight of the crowds. Mm -hmm. This guy, he takes out to the wilderness, right? To, to a private place, which is this on a spiritual level. I think it shows Jesus's um, willingness to enter into what each and every individual might need in a yeah. particular time. And this does actually get somewhat intimate in a certain sense yeah. with spit and, and ears. Yeah. And Anyone stuff. who has their fingers in my ears Anyone. is closer than I like people. And you think. want it to be done in private. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, if it's going to be done, I want it to be done be in done. private. So that Jesus is respected. But I'm just not into the finger in the ear thing at all. I mean, I just, I just want to make that clear. What if Jesus came and stuck his finger in the I ear? Would ha I, would, I would accept it. I mean, he might. He doesn't say if he liked it. Right. He doesn't say true. if he was right. happy about no, it. No, the but... guy probably himself was very disoriented by this. And actually, I would think maybe even all the more, because if you're deaf, you probably have a sensitivity about the, someone touching oh. this part of your body that's, yeah. right. you know, that you feel like is broken or that you're vulnerable. About. I mean, all the right. more. Right. You know? All the more. Absolutely. And, and sometimes Jesus is healing of all sorts of things in our life is uncomfortable right and awkward fair enough it's a weird story yeah but mark isn't jesus isn't afraid and mark isn't afraid of the weird stories mm -hmm. which actually makes me want to go into the next weird story so again in between or right after this we have the, the next feeding scene um and again i think it's significant that in this one jesus does take the initiative the other one is more apostolic in the sense that he gives the authority to the apostles to do it they kind of blow i mean they don't blow it they, they do the job but they demonstrate themselves in the very next scene to have hardened hearts. Uh -huh. Their hearts are hardened. And so in the next occasion, Jesus is fine. I'm, I'm just going to do it myself. Yeah. And they take a little bit more of a back seat, which again is important for what comes next. So I want to jump ahead to verse 14. So right after the second feeding, um, and again, it's similar. Some of the numbers are different and there's, there's significance with, you know, the seven speaking toward a covenant, you know, 12 speaks toward the new establishment of Israel. There's lots of pieces, but I want to, I want to get to what's happening internally with the apostles. So verse 14, it says, now they had forgotten to bring bread. So again, they're once again on a boat, they're once again going someplace and once again, <laughs> once again, they're hungry. So it says they had forgotten to bring bread and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. Uh -huh. And Jesus cautioned them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Mm -hmm. So they're sitting in the boat and they're like, oh, shoot, we only brought one loaf of bread. We forgot yeah. lunch. Yeah. And Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Right. And they say, we have no bread. Yeah. <laughs> That's their response. Yeah. Like, which again, I love this. I think this is another scene of Mark trying to make us feel a little bit of their confusion because uh -huh. it's good for us to do that. Yeah. And there's, we just said, we have no bread. And Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Yeah. He said that a few times about them now, and that's not good. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? So remember, we talked, I think last time, about this idea of, of Jesus speaking in parables. And mm -hmm. sometimes he does it to keep people blind and deaf and uh -huh. not understand. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, it seems that Jesus is okay. Well, I don't know if he's okay with it, but the disciples are blind and deaf and not understand. They're now falling into the category of the outsiders, yeah. the ones who don't get it. Yeah. Um, and they don't remember. And Jesus says, he goes on verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you have? Right. And they said to him, 12. <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, okay, 12. And what about the seven for the 4,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said, do you not yet understand? Yeah. Which is the implied answer of, nope. Right. And, and maybe we don't either. Right. And again, I think what, it, what it's getting at is a simple concept. Right. Which is, you guys, I, you keep finding yourself in distress. 
you keep finding yourself in hard situations. Have I ever not shown up? Sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes you have to go through a little bit. Right. I keep showing up. I keep providing. Did you not learn the lesson yet? Right. Instead, you're witnessing the miracles that I'm performing. You're witnessing my providence. And your response to my providence is hardness of heart. Yeah. That's what the Pharisees do. That's what the scribes are doing. That's what Pharaoh did. That's the category you were falling into, which yeah. again is pretty vulnerable for an apostle to actually admit that in his own letter yeah. or in his, in his own gospel rather. Which brings us to the next verse. This is one of my favorite sections in the whole dang Bible. So then they come to a place called Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man. And if you live in Bethesda, Maryland, I think this is what that's coming from. Uh, no, there is a Bethesda. Does Bethesda of the Old Testament become Bethsaida of the New Testament? Some names actually It's change. Dr. Powell that's going to have to explain I'm that one. I'm going to say yes. Okay, let's good. Just so go if you live in Bethesda, Maryland, yes. this is your town. This is your story. Anyway, so they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man. So this is common now. We're, we're pretty deep into healing of blind people and deaf people. Yes. Jesus, remember, the beginning of this whole section gave the command to listen. The first time he spoke in parables, he said, listen. Right before he goes to the crucifixion, he's going to say, watch. Mm -hmm. In between the emphatic listen and the emphatic watch, what do we see? We see the disciples being called deaf. We see the disciples being called blind. We see Jesus healing deaf people. We see Jesus healing blind people. Yeah. There's this uh, very interesting, again, kind of intercalation of sandwich of watching, hearing, Blind, deaf, um, all kind of sandwiched together. Yeah. And the apostles embodying all of it. So they brought him a blind man. Now, if you thought the healing of the deaf guy was weird, this is this is even weirder. Um, it says he took, verse 23, he took the blind man by his hand and he led him out of the village like the deaf guy. Yeah. Uh, and when he had spit in his eyes, now this doesn't even say he used the finger. It just, right. It just says he spit, spit in his, his eyes. eyes. Yeah. I don't know by what mechanism he did. When he had spit in his eyes, he laid his hands upon him and he asked him, do you see anything? Now, pause for a second, because as you've stated, Jesus, again, one of the big themes in Mark is the showing of Jesus' authority. Yeah. He is authoritative. When he speaks, it happens. When yeah. he calms the storm, it quiets. Yeah. Here, Jesus spits in the guy's eyes. He lays his hands and then he says, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see men as trees walking. Would you call this man... Fully seeing at this point. Would you give him a no, he's got blurry. No, he's got blurry eyes. I mean, he, he's, he's blurry-eyed. Would you call him blind? Well, I don't know if he meets the legal definition of blind, but he does not yet fully see. But that's weird, right? Yeah. Because again, as Mark goes, well, Jesus does it. Well, it's not a presto changeo. But it's always a presto changeo. Jesus loves presto changeos uh -huh. in Mark. Well, except this is here. a slow go changeo. <laughs> right. But that's, I think it's meant to catch you off guard. Because uh -huh. that's not how it works with how Jesus. How Jesus does it. Yeah. So... Do you see anything? Well, I can kind of... What, what's the issue? He can see. I mean, I think we can right. admit he can see, but he doesn't understand what he's seeing. Yeah. I see men, but they look like trees. I can yeah. see, but I don't understand what yeah. I'm seeing. Uh, so then again, what are we? Verse 25. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and then he was restored. And then he saw everything clearly. And yeah. Jesus sent him away to his home saying, don't even go into the village. Yeah. So two rounds it yeah. takes. First, uh, seeing but not understanding. And then finally, it, it kind of working. Mark leaves you there. It's another case where Mark gives you a weird story and just kind of leaves you there. And then yeah. he goes into something else, yeah. which is this. Verse 27. Uh, then it says, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Mark loves the cryptic cliffhanger. He loves like, the cryptic cliff like, cliffhanger. Um, yeah, it's like that. Uh, I didn't watch it, but a lot of people were into that show 
about kids from the Amazon. Cliffhanger? Infa- no. <laughs> uh, I strange, love, I love Stranger Things. Oh, Stranger Things, yeah. Isn't that a sort of creepy cliffhanger? Yeah. Maybe it's, not. It's more creepy than cliffhanger. Okay, but, okay. There's probably enough. some cliffhanger. Well, see, I never saw it, and I tried yeah. to speculate about it, and this is what happened. There's some creepy. Okay, yeah. so anyhow, Mark Mark loves the uh, the creepy cliffhanger. There are some people who look like trees. Okay, fair enough. So that's, that's the demigorgon. Kind there of looks go. like a tree. Okay. All right. Um... So then Jesus went on to Caesarea Philippi. This is, Mar- Matthew gives you kind of a more full-bodied version of this story. Yeah. Um, historically speaking, there's not much in Caesarea Philippi, uh-huh. except for a giant temple that was hewn into a rock face that was dedicated to Caesar Augustus. Um, and the reason that this temple existed dedicated to Caesar Augustus, do you know the story? So Caesar Augustus was the... I shook my head no, listeners. No, yeah, you did. (laughs) Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, Uh the famous Julius Caesar um, of Shakespearean fame. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, all the stuff. Who was known um, for being the one who really made the Roman Empire the Roman Empire and transitioned it from the Greek Empire, the Pax Romana, all the stuff. So Caesar Augustus, what we know about Caesar Augustus is that he was... um, He definitely wasn't shy, but you could tell he always wanted more power. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is... Oh, Caesar Augustus is uh, Gaius Octavius. Yeah. I'm yeah. looking Octavius, right. yeah. Yeah, so exactly. he's the guy. He helps Brutus kill... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, okay, great. So he... He helps Brutus kill Julius Caesar. He asked... Yeah, he did, didn't he? And yeah. then there was a civil war he and he power. triumphed. Exactly. And he was the first Roman... I just wrote about this, so I recently remember. He's the first of the Roman leaders to um, give himself a title which uh, ascribed divinity to himself. Yes, but he, it wasn't just that. He started by ascribing divinity to Julius. Right, okay, so because, that he could be the son of God. Yes. That's right, he called himself a son of God. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. So what he did was demand that temples to his father right. be built, and of course, they would also be dedicated to the son of God. So uh-huh. the only thing that I'm aware of at the time of significance in Caesarea Philippi, so Caesarea Philippi, there was a city called Philippi that was renamed Caesar's Philippi. Oh, Caesar's Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, and they took a, a defunct temple... And they recommissioned it, I suppose you could say, uh-huh. to Caesar Augustus and his son, the son of God, Julius. Uh-huh. So when Jesus takes the disciples to Caesarea Philippi, they are presumably stand, standing in the shadow of a giant rock edifice, which held a temple to a dead, a dead God, God, the son of a dead God. Right. So when Jesus says to his disciples, hey, who do people, you know, the first public opinion poll, who do people say that I am? Well, 20% say you're Elijah, 35% right. say I'm yeah. decided, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus, now, Matthew gives you a, the, the more full-bodied version. He says, well, who do you say that I am? Right. And it's, of course, Simon, Peter, who says, you are the Christ, the king. Christos was the title held by Caesar and Caesar alone. Right. But he says in Matthew, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Yes. Which is ironic because they're standing in the shadow of, of a, a dead God to the son of a dead God. Yeah, it's, it's like a little twist of the knife, yeah, so it's, to speak. And, and in response, Jesus says, you are rock right and on you i'm going oh, to build wow. my ecclesia so that the scene matters profoundly, creepers which is Scott. really cool okay so that's where they are jesus uh, i'm sorry peter makes his, his grand proclamation yeah so at this point would you say that peter sees who jesus is yes does peter see who jesus is are you gonna ask me three times is no, a no, rooster no. at some point no. going to does peter see he says you're the christ does peter see yes yes stick with that now what happens next then, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed, and after three days rise again. I like that Mark points out in verse 32, he said this plainly. This wasn't a parable. Right, this right, wasn't right. cryptic. Yeah. He said it clearly. No, no mark and secret here. No mark and secret. 
And Peter took him and began to what? Rebuke him. him. What are you, Jesus why are you does doing? to demons? What are you? Uh, yeah. Why are storm. you saying this? Oh, Peter thought that Jesus had a demon. Maybe it could could be. Jeepers, creepers. He it's began to rebuke intense. him, and turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and mm-hmm. said, "Get behind me, Shatan. Shatan." Um, I don't think he's calling Peter the devil. Yeah. Shatan means the divider, the one who, who confuses. So he's yeah. saying, you are acting as this. Yeah. You're not on the side of God, but on the side of men. And then he calls to him the multitude and he begins to teach. And he teaches in, not in parables this time, but in paradoxes. And he says, yeah. all right. You Whoever def- would save his life will lose it. Whoever right. loses his life will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Exactly. So, yeah. he. But it's kind of like, he kind of just like, he drops, he, he just like, um, Drops a hard line on say, on Peter, and then is just like, you know what? I'm just gonna teach for a while. It's kind of well. What intense. just happened though? This is what we can't miss. So does Peter see who Jesus is? It seems that he does when he says that Jesus is the Christ. Does he understand what he's seeing? Clearly not. And so I suppose the thing is, he doesn't know what the Christ, the Messiah, is. What it he's is? He's the means. blind man. I see. That's why Mark tells you that story and goes straight into Peter. Because he sees the Christ. Uh, he sees Jesus as a Christ walking. But he doesn't understand. He well, says, what does he not this... see? The tree. Right. Uh-huh. That's what he can't see. Yeah. Wait, what? He, but what Peter can't see is, so to speak, the tree. It's the cross that he can't quite Uh-oh. understand. The reason Mark tells you the story of the blind man that took two rounds yeah. is to show that actually Peter is embodying what's happening physically in that guy. Wow. Which is kind of cool. Yeah. So, um... Kind of cool. This is awesome, man. It's my favorite blind guy story. So what we have from this point on, and this is where we can kind of kind of speed up, Mark um, enters in. This is the section that's called the way of the Lord section. Okay. The, the hodos, the path. Okay. And this is the section where Jesus is traveling. He's on the road. Yeah. And there will be three separate stories, which is kind of cool. There are three separate stories in which Jesus will say something relatively clearly. Mm-hmm. He will say who he will give it an insight into what his what his kingship is, who the Christ is. Yeah. Someone or multiple someones, will show themselves or demonstrate themselves to be blind to it. So in the transfiguration, the transfiguration happens in the next part in chapter 9. And then Peter says, do you want us to make you some tents for you and Moses and Elijah? For he didn't know what to say. So again, Peter sort of in the transfiguration kind of misses it a little. Huh? He does, it, although that's not one of the formally oh, okay. the three. But he does, that is part of it. I actually want to come back to that. Okay, cool. Um, next time. But the second one is actually in chapter 9, verse 31. Okay. And it says, actually, verse 30, it says, Then they went on from there. They passed through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anybody to know it, for he was teaching his disciples and saying, The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Mm -hmm. So three times, um, Mark will show you explicitly, Jesus will give an explicit prediction of what will happen to him. Mm -hmm. And someone or multiple someones will explicitly not understand. And when that happens, uh, again, the way that it sort of works is that Jesus will respond by teaching in paradoxes. Right. And so here it says, then he they came to Capernaum. Um, he, he, he said, this is, I shouldn't laugh because it's actually a terrible story. But they came to Capernaum and he, they were in the house and he asked them, hey, what were you guys discussing on, on the hodos? So Jesus said, hey, best friends, I'm going to be killed and I'm going to suffer. Right. What were you guys talking about? 
And they were quiet because they were discussing which one was the greatest one. Right, yeah. Blindness, uh-huh. non-understanding. They yeah. didn't even hear him. This is where you get the deafness. They didn't yeah. even hear what he was saying. So he sat down, he called the 12, and he said to them, what a paradox, if anyone would be first, he must be last and a servant of all. And then he puts the child in their midst. So he teaches in a paradox. This actually from chapter 9, verse 31 into chapter 10, uh, what is it, verse 31 or something? Uh-huh. It's the longest teaching section that Mark gives you. Mm. So Mark, remember, he's always sort of saying, as Jesus was teaching, this thing happens. Or while this was happening, this happens. The longest one you get is from the middle of chapter 9 through chapter 10. And what's ironic about it is that what he teaches about in this longest section is essentially marriage, kids, and money. Mm. So he talks about marriage. He talks about divorce. He gives hard teachings. He, ta- he puts children in their midst and talks about becoming like a little child. Uh-huh. He talks about money. Rich man, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Exactly right. right. So that's this this whole section. So we get the, the, the largest content of his teaching. Uh-huh. And at the very end of it, we get chapter 10, verse 32. Uh-huh. And this is the first time you see this from the disciples yet. It says, verse 32, they were on the road, the hodos, going up to Jerusalem, and it says, then Jesus was walking ahead of them. And this is the first time you see them kind of keeping their distance a little bit. Uh-huh. They're like, oh, shoot. They, you get the impression that they're beginning slowly to hear, right. right? Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Why are they afraid? Because he just talked about marriage, kids, and money. Yeah. Which are, you know, difficulties in a lot of people's lives. Right. On the way up to Calvary, right. this is what he's unpacking for them. Which I'm not against marriage, kids, and money, but... This is a lot of the source of our... We're not all going to be beheaded like John the Baptist. Right. We're not all going to be persecuted by the Romans. Right. But we're all going to have to die to ourselves in these kind of ways. Yes. So I think mm-hmm. that's significant. So, and taking the 12 again, he said to them what was about to happen to him. This is the most R-rated prediction that he gives yet. Mm-hmm. He said, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him, not in the good way, and scourge him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Well, that's a that's a, correct. It's as as explicit yeah. as predictive as clear as as Jesus has done yes. or will do. And then verse thirty five, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him as he just told them all of the horrors that he will face. Yeah, and they say, "Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of yeah. you." And what's strange about that question is Jesus's answer. He just predicted his own death in a, in a pretty profound way. Yeah. And he said, what do you want me to do for you? Right. Which if somebody asked me that, I'd, I'd be super pissed, yeah. right? He said, no, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, well, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. We want the positions of power because they still don't understand, even though they see Jesus' kingship, they don't understand the nature of the kingship. Yeah. And so Jesus says, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Remember in the baptism scene, we connected the baptism with the cross. Right. Here he's explicitly doing that again. And they're like, yeah, totally. We are able. And Jesus said, all right, the cup I drink, you will drink because they will be martyred too. The baptism which with, which I, with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right or left hand is not mine to grant, but for those who have been prepared. And when they heard it, they began to be indignant. When the others heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them and said to them, You know those who are supposed to rule over the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever among you would be great must be your servant. So again, a paradox. Mm-hmm. Trying to unpack this.
The last thing I want to say, if we if we have the time for it, we have the time for it. Okay, the listeners, last are you thing good? I want to say, the listeners are good. Are you guys okay? Okay, I didn't, they mumbled. The way that Mark ends this whole section, which is again the the so called way of the Lord, the travel section, is at the end of chapter ten, and then they come to a place called Jericho. So I'm in verse forty six. Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples. In a great multitude, a guy named Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Now, this is the first person in the Gospel of Mark who Jesus heals, who was actually given a name. Mm-hmm. Not one other person was named. So this is significant. And I'm not sure exactly what the full significance is, but it merits our attention, I think. So this guy named Bartimaeus, he, he's named, and he says, verse 47, When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out. And say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many, what? Rebuked him. Rebuked him, him, which is not a good thing. They rebuked him, telling him to be silent. It's almost a counter version of what Jesus does with the demons. He rebukes and he silences. That's what they're trying to do to this guy. But uh, he he cried cried out out all all the more. more. Son of David, have mercy on me. (laughs) And Jesus stopped and said, call Call him. him. What's the first step of discipleship? To be called. To be called. Which, again, mm-hmm. is countercultural because yes. in this culture, people came to disciples to be disciples. Right. But Jesus calls. So this is discipleship language. I want this guy. Call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart. I, I imagine that the same people who were rebuking him and telling him to be quiet now have to, maybe it was the no, disciples. Right. Now they have to kind of tuck their tail between their legs. And they're like, no, hey, no, hey, he's, he's calling, calling you. you. Right, yeah. Come on. Take heart, he's calling you. And throwing off his mantle, he sprang up and came to Jesus. So when called, what does a proper apostle, uh, disciple do? They follow. This guy doesn't just follow. He springs. He throws off something, you know, his old self, so, so to speak. So say the fathers. And he runs to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And Jesus said to him, what? What do you want me to do for you? Where have we heard those, those he words? He just said that. He just said it to the yeah, apostles. Right. And what have the apostles demonstrated about themselves? That, that they, they don't see. That they're blind mm-hmm. and they're deaf. Yeah. What does this guy say? He asked the same words. What do you want me to do? And the blind man said, let me receive my sight. I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and he followed him on the way. Every other person that Jesus heals, we never hear from again. They go on their way. They go home. They go to the village. They do whatever. This is the only one who actually follows Jesus. He becomes a disciple. Yeah. So in a certain sense, just as the blind man in chapter 8 was embodying what was happening at the heart of the apostles, particularly Peter, Bartimaeus at the end of this section is embodying what's supposed to be happening in the heart of the disciple. That we are blind. We are deaf. Jesus wants to do whatever we ask of him. Except that we need to understand what it is that we need to ask of him. I want to see. I want to hear. I want to understand. And this guy actually embodies. I love that it's from the perspective of Peter. Because Peter shows himself as a blind, non-understanding, deaf person. Right. And he, by his own, um, by his own testimony, shows this poor beggar being the kind of disciple that Peter seems to wish that he was. I imagine, I suspect this is true for all of us, like, I imagine that Bartimaeus must have been a deep source of conversion for Peter. Like, when you see holiness and you are aware of your own insufficiency, it's a deep source of repentance and and humility. Yeah. And he remembers his name. Yeah, right. That's true. Which is, which is, seems like an insignificant thing. But But it's years later and Peter's in jail and he remembers his name. Yeah. Yeah. So that brings us to the end of chapter 10. 
Okay, everybody, Sunday School is a production of Pillar Media. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and our Sunday School teacher bringing us all to sight is Dr. Scott Powell, Scripture Scholar Extraordinaire. Next week at Sunday School, we will talk about Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, and then chapters 11 through 13. That episode will also include a recording of the readings from Pillar co-founder Ed Condon, but feel free to read ahead on your own as well. It's weird, by the way, that you asked me to say Scholar Extraordinary oh in the gosh, face. I don't, I don't need this. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>